you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, by word and by your Spirit, according to your promise, may this be to your glory and your people's good this day. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Correct us. Bring us to conviction and repentance. And encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a special time, a sense of great sense on my part of pleasure and gratitude. I get to stand before you all today. The connections I've had with this church and its leadership, many of you, is a source of ongoing and great joy. I'd let you know that Boulevard pretty regularly prays for you in our morning service as part of our elder prayer. Today we do something here. That's been done throughout the history of the church with a mixture of personal sadness and kingdom joy. We send off a brother, Nathan, his family, to a new place of ministry. That, of course, is the mark of a healthy church. The Lord makes use of his servants when and where he sees fit, and he moves them as he sees fit, and I've just noticed the Lord never consults with me about that. He just does it. So, even as dense as I be, occasionally it sinks in, this isn't about me, it's not about building my ministry, it's not about building my brand, it's not even about building the church that I shepherd, it's the Lord building his kingdom. Now, I will acknowledge today's message may seem a bit lighter in exposition than would be my norm, a little heavier in application. But that said, I believe this is very much anchored in the text. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. The work of the kingdom is wonderful And at the same time, it can be extraordinarily discouraging and difficult. Not everyone 
thankfully, is called to do what Charles Simeon had to do, who went to Trinity Church in London and was so despised by his congregation that for years they would not come to church to hear him. And as the neighborhood began to realize they liked him and wanted to hear him, they would come. And in wonderful show of Christian love and support, those who paid for the pews, and that day you paid a pew subscription, it was the family pew, and they had doors, they locked their pews. So nobody else could sit there and hear this fellow preach. And so folks would gather and they'd sit in the aisles and they'd sit around the room and they'd find chairs in the rest of the building. Well, when the church warden or the janitor discovered that, he locked up all the chairs. And yet Simeon endured and eventually spent 60 years in that ministry. It takes a certain degree of spirit-driven stubbornness, I think, to continue in the work. The stats are not encouraging. When I began 44 years, indeed, the statistic was out of every five that began in ministry, four would not end in ministry. It's gotten worse. It's now 90% who begin in ministry will not end their work in that ministry. Discouragement can be huge, especially if you believe the lies of your enemy. The culture around you, and a lot of well-meaning Christian folk can get you in a place where you're in trouble. And sometimes there's not a certainty. Now I know somebody said, wait a minute, Doug, you're going to spend all this time talking to leadership. Well, sort of, but I'm also talking to you. If you haven't caught on yet, when you read those requirements for elders or deacons in 1 Timothy 3rd chapter, none of those is unique to the office. All of them are required of us. Every believer is to have these things in their lives. It's just if you're going to aspire to leadership, it's not an option. And if it's not there, you can't be a leader. So don't... Okay, I can take a little snooze here. We'll get back to something that concerns... No, my brothers and sisters, this concerns all of us. If for nothing else, you need to know what you need to do for yourself because you too need to watch your life and your doctrine. And you'd better pray for your leaders that they watch their life and their doctrine. And my brothers who are elders, I cannot emphasize this enough. If you don't, you're doomed. If you don't pay attention to these things. Some years ago, Eugene Peterson in his book, Working the Angles, said this, American pastors are abandoning their posts left and right and at an alarming rate. They're not leaving their churches and getting other jobs. 
Congregations still pay their salaries, their names remain on the church stationery, and they continue to appear in pulpits on Sundays, but they are abandoning, the, abandoning their posts, their calling. They have gone whoring after other gods. What they do with their time under the guise of pastoral ministry hasn't the remotest connection with what the church's pastors have done for most of 20 centuries. The pastors of America have metamorphosed into a company of shopkeepers. And the shops they keep are churches. They're preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns. How to keep the customers happy. How to lure customers away from competitors down the street. How to package the goods so the customers will lay out more money. Some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract a lot of customers. Pull in great sums of money. Develop splendid reputations. Yet it is still shopkeeping, religious shopkeeping to be sure, but shopkeeping all the same. The marketing strategies of the fast food franchise occupy the waking minds of these entrepreneurs. While asleep, they dream of the kind of success that will get the attention of journalists. And may I make a quick aside, if it's not the shopkeeping today, it is social theory or political activism. The biblical fact is, hear this quote, there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them and does His work in them. In these communities of sinners, One of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility in the community. The responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. It is this responsibility that's being abandoned in spades. Paul's encouraging, actually commanding Timothy to stay true to his ministry in Ephesus. And it was a struggle. He's warned Timothy about false teachers, encouraged him to pray. He has, in essence, said, Timothy, I know it's hard, and I know you don't like it, but you're going to stay there. I left you there for a reason. Here's how you're going to behave. I remind us all, there are innumerable temptations to forsake the two things that actually lead to salvation. Watch your life, watch your doctrine, and the consequences you see salvation. Fail to do those things. And it's lost. So this outline is very complex today. Alright? I'll do my best to make sure you follow along. It's really hard. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. Witness salvation. That's really difficult, isn't it? Watch your life. Nathan, no doubt, you're undoubtedly a disciplined man. And all of us, I raise this question, what does it mean to watch your life? If you look at the earlier verses, he says things like uh, being a good servant, paying attention to faith and godliness, being an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity to the whole church. When you think about that, here's what I would remind us all of, my friends. Number one, never think you're immune to sin. Godliness and purity are not accidental things. Nor are they on autopilot. 
Please understand, I'm not for a moment denying the perseverance of the saints or that the Spirit of God does not work in believers. He does. Otherwise, you wouldn't put any effort in it at all. But your job is not to wait for the work of the Spirit to do what is before you to do. Do what you're commanded to do. Part of that is beware of sin. It is deceitful. It is dangerous. It will find a way into your life if you don't watch yourself. Never think you're immune to discouragement. This addresses the issue of faithfulness. Calvin Miller put it this way. On Sundays, we preachers get a lot of rocket-propelled grenades. I like that imagery. The outfall of the shrapnel is intense. Pastor, your sermons don't feed me, say all the chubby Christians. Mm. I I sure hope you're always our pastor, which sounds like a compliment, but in reality, you can't help but wonder if they've heard something. Sundays are a holiday for paranoids. When anyone says pleasantly, hello, pastor, we have to ask, I wonder what they mean by that. The thing that makes the paranoia surreal is sometimes you feel like everybody is out to get you, and only because they are. Calvin shares being in a church early in his life in Nebraska, and it was a discouraging place. It was a church plant. They'd grown some. They'd lost some. It had been hard. Some people got the grumbles. And then they had a lead grumbler. And the lead grumbler would host people at his home on Sunday nights for pie. So they could have pie and roast preacher. Calvin says he came home one day to find his wife Barbara sitting on the edge of the bed, sobbing out of loneliness and misery and rejection. And he said, it finally struck me. that I got on my knees and I begged her forgiveness and I prayed to the Lord, Lord, forgive me for what I've done. I've had enough. I will leave this place. And so he said his mind he was going to resign that Sunday morning. He called a friend to talk to him about it. And the friend said, well, have you thought about telling him how you feel? And he said, no, I don't use that kind of language in the pulpit. Um, And he said, no, what do you got to lose? You're already leaving. And he said, then it occurred to me. They've behaved like rats. And how will rats ever know their rodent-like behavior if nobody ever explains it to them? He also notes at that point, that's when the Spirit of God may have left him. But he said, for the first time in months, he was looking forward to preaching. He said, they sang some songs I didn't think they believed. Oh, how I love Jesus, when clearly they didn't. And here's what he said. I am ashamed of you people. And I think God shares my opinion. No one in the world should treat a preacher's family like you've treated Barbara and me. And you know what? I'm fed up with it. I came home and found my wife crying because of both the loneliness and the criticism you forced upon us. Your views of the golden rule, your view of the golden rule is so far away, I don't know if you can even write it out, but I know one thing. I never taught you this kind of congregational savagery. And it certainly isn't in the Bible. I'm leaving here. I'm going to find a new congregation who has managed to take the Bible seriously and model the Christian life <clears throat> with an exhibit of love and kindness. I haven't seen much of that around here. 
Oh, by the way, I got down on my knees beside my wife and told God what I think he wanted me to say and what I think he wants you to hear. I need Jesus. I need Barbara. But I don't need you anymore. And if you ever manage to cry out your sins before God, there's a slight chance he might go ahead and save you, which is more than any of you deserve. Now he notes, he said, as rebukes go, was a pretty good rebuke, but he said, I messed up. I started to cry. He said, I have great admiration for a cinematic tear, a single tear down a leathery face. But he said, I just went straight to bawling. And he said, the problem is when I cry, my face screws up such a way that it causes healthy people to get sick in their stomach. (laughs) To all would-be rebukers, don't cry. It messes up the whole rebuke. But he said something else happened. He said, I wasn't alone. They were all crying. And he said, some of the men were uglier than I was. And suddenly they were coming up and hugging us. And he said, suddenly the world was upside down. Everybody came and hugged him except the one. That afternoon, some men, leaders in the church, visited him and said, Brother, it's between you and our pastor, and we love him. We want him to stay. You need to go away. And the man vowed, I'll see him run out of this church. Thursday of that week, that man was struck by lightning. He survived. Calvin says, I went to visit him. He said, my heart wasn't really in it. But he said, there's something about being struck by lightning. You kind of start thinking, maybe I ought to pay attention to. <laughs> he said, the man was absolutely unrepentant. Would not hardly speak to him. He went on. And the church that had begun with 10 in 20 years was 3,000. Now, my friends, I say that to you just to remind you, this can be very discouraging. Remind yourself you're not in control. It's the Lord's congregation. They were here before you arrived. They'll be here long after you're gone. A good indicator of how well you're doing this may be how much you laugh. If you're in charge of everything, brothers, you can't laugh. There's too much weight. If you understand you're not, you can have a sense of humor. I Something about staying in the ministry a long time. Younger guys tend to come ask you questions. And when we were over on North National, had students from BBC that would come talk to me. They had, it was part of a requirement for a class. And I was nearby, and we weren't BBFI, and they had to talk to somebody outside the BBFI. So I was the closest thing they knew to a liberal, I guess. Anyway, they, um, they <laughs> all depends on context, doesn't it, children? Uh, one of them came to me, and he was a very intense young man. And he was talking, so he asked all these questions, very intense questions, and I did my best to answer. And he finally said, so what's your last, what would you say to me? I've not asked, what's the last thing that you think I need to hear? And I said, brother, it's really simple. Don't take yourself so seriously. And he liked to have a meltdown. What do you mean? This is the kingdom, people's souls. And he said, settle down, son. Here's what I said. Don't take you so seriously. 
The work matters. The work is eternal. You have obligations. But you, not so much. You ain't that good at this thing, and you're not going to be. There's no professionals in the Christian life, at Christian living. We're all rank amateurs, right? Mm. Know yourself. Care for your soul. Keep the gospel as the foundation to your personal life. And I say this, your family will know. See, it ain't too hard to hide stuff from folks around here. At least that's my experience. I'm sure this has never happened to any of you, but bear with me for a moment. There have been occasions in the Shivers household where things did not go well at the house on Sunday morning, particularly when there were still children at the house. Right? Despite the best laid plans of mice and men, something didn't work out. Usually multiple somethings. Now, I would love to tell you that in all of those instances, I was calm and gracious. But there's no sense compounding the issue with a lie. So occasionally, when we'd arrive at church, we would arrive either in the midst of a little bit of nya 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 or icy silence. Until you got out of the car. Hey brother, how you doing? Man, it's good to be here today. Your family? Oh, we're all fine. Just, just so thank. Does that ever happen to anybody else? <laughs> and folks, I say that's normal, but please keep in mind, my brothers and sisters hear this. Your wife knows. Your husband knows. Your children know. D.A. Carson, probably the leading New Testament scholar of our era, told about his father who was a church planter in Canada at a time when Baptist pastors were often jailed. Jailed for being church planters. And he said, Dad would usually lead us in singing around the piano while Mom was finishing lunch on Sundays. And said, one Sunday I couldn't find him. He wasn't at the piano. And he said, I finally tracked him down. The door of his study was ajar. I pushed it open and there he was, kneeling in front of his big chair, praying and quietly weeping. This time I could hear what he was saying. He was interceding with God on behalf of the handful of people to whom he had preached, and in particular for the conversion of a few who regularly attended but who had never trusted God. Christ Jesus. In the ranks of ecclesiastical hierarchies, his dad was never going to be anybody. But folks, do you understand the impact that had on another who had a huge impact? What I'm saying to all of us is you and I are called first to watch our lives. Now secondly, to watch our doctrine. What do we say when we say watch your doctrine? Well, you go back to the 15th verse. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. What things? Godliness, the gospel, the public reading of the scripture. 
If what we say in preaching is nothing but testimony, platitudes, and a kind of religious nagging, it's not rooted in the text of Scripture. We anchor ourselves both in terms of how we live and what we believe. Because the stuff that makes the content of the brain box, the realities, ultimately flows out in the way you live. You can't separate life and doctrine. Every time I hear people say, Preacher, I want something practical. You're talking about doctrine. I say, "Uh, I'm sorry, but you're so immature you don't understand this. Doctrine feeds life. Life demonstrates doctrine. You can't separate those things. We do often and far too often, much to our own lament and sorrow. But watch the doctrine. There are so many deadly substitutes. Carson in another place said, I fear the cross without being disowned is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. The centrality of the cross. Brian Chappell in his book on preaching talks about the danger of the deadly bees in preaching. (laughs) Be like be like Moses, be like Daniel, be like David, be like, be like, you know, it's a little secret, folks. That ain't a good practice. The Bible goes out of its way to sully the character of all the heroes. Have you noticed that? Everlasting. The only hero in the Bible is Jesus. Okay? So be careful about the be likes, the be good messages. You weren't good enough for God this week. Hunker down and try better this week. Admonishments to holiness without explaining the source, motives, and results are mere moralistic addresses. Be disciplined. The danger of making the disciplines a means of getting on God's good side. Messages without redemptive context. I'd add a couple to these. I'll call one of them the Gnostic genre. Seen most frequently in the neo-charismatic word of faith movements, but that somehow God's revealing secrets. But I go back to this. Every time I hear a believer say, well, the Lord told me. What? God told me. How? Well, folks, I'm not denying the leadership of the Spirit of God. But boy, we ought to be careful with the language we use. See, that's supposed to end all the debate, right? God told me. Here's... I saw this in college. Some young man would get a, take a shine to a young gal and he'd pray about it and he'd say, go to her and say, the Lord told me that you and I are supposed to get married. Hmm. Apparently, either she was very unspiritual or the Lord wasn't telling her the same thing. Right? You want to hear from God? Hear from God. Want to hear Him speak? Read it aloud. The therapeutic genre is your life a mess. Come to Jesus. He'll fix it. Our self-centeredness is so deep We'll try to make anything about us. In our time especially, I'll call it the political or justice genre. 
the dangerous temptation to move from the centrality of reconciliation with God to the secondary reconciliation with one another. We must never find racism acceptable. We must never find gender confusion or fluidity acceptable. But we must never become mere political commentators. It is not my calling. It is not your calling. I'm a shepherd, not a wolf hunter. The how-to genre? <laughs> a few years ago, I went in the bookstore. Isn't around anymore, but I walked in. I found a new book. <laughs> Lists to live by. I just wanted to stand there and weep. Lists to... That's what I need is another list. And then I saw there were volumes 2, 3, and 4. <laughs> Lists to live by. My word, even under the terms of the Old Covenant... The list was ten lines long, okay? For the love. Four volumes of lists to live by. The only thing I didn't see was a book for journaling your own lists. How to is not saving. The scripture applies, but my brothers and sisters, let's not let that become central. What did Paul mean when he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Let that be central. So how do you go about preaching Christ? By preaching the whole story. Spurgeon is rumored to have said, whatever text I'm in, I open the text and make a beeline for the cross. Remember, we are preachers. We are ministers of the new covenant. We preach Christ. We preach the whole story. The experience of the disciples on the road to Emmaus is instructive. If we just listen. They're walking along. You remember how this goes? Jesus comes to them and they don't recognize Him as Jesus. And He asks them, I'm paraphrasing, so what's been going on? And they said, have you been in a barn somewhere under a rock? Haven't you heard about what happened in Jerusalem? There was this fellow Jesus and they start telling the whole thing and we thought he was the one, but he's dead. They crucified him and then we had some friends that have gone down and they say the tomb is empty and we don't know what to do with all that. Oh foolish and slow of heart to believe all that is written in the law and the prophets. And he goes on to say, he began to explain to them all that the scripture said concerning himself. I've said I'd love to have heard that sermon. Right? And then one day it dawned on me. I have the sermon. It's the New Testament. That sermon is the New Testament. You want to understand how the Old Testament points to Jesus? Read the New. We te preach the whole Christ. We preach the whole story. We preach the whole Christ. All that He has done, magnifying, glorifying Him. Years ago, I had a fellow that was in our church who was a missionary, and he had somehow failed on the mission field. Never could find out what went on with the fellow. I don't know what it was, but he was in trouble. And he was trying to recover, and he, at one point, talking to him, I said, well, brother, I tell you what, would you like to preach on a Sunday night? He said, I'd love to. I said, great. So I'm thinking, okay, I've got a fellow that is trying to recover, and he's a seminary-trained guy, and he'll bring us a good sermon on Sunday night. And folks, I hate to say it, it was the awfulest thing I ever had to sit through. 
It's in the top five of the worst sermons I've ever heard in my life. Over and over and over again, I'm guessing between 30 and 40 times this phrase was used. Accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Accept. You know what? By the tenth time, wasn't nobody paying attention to what he said anymore. Part of it is he missed his context. Sunday night in a Southern Baptist church. Now, I'm not saying there couldn't have been unconverted people there. That's always a possibility. But he, th- and after the sermon, he came to, you know, I was trying to make that one point. I wanted to say at least 30 or 40 times that phrase. Well, you did it. <laughs> By the way, that was the first and last time he spoke. Um, And my friends, this matter of knowing these things, I'm not, please understand, I'm not, nor should we advocate some kind of elitism here. The father of the modern mission movement, William Carey, was probably one of the smartest men of his day in terms of languages, skills, abilities. When he came to the end of his life, here's what he wanted on his tombstone, and this is what was put there a wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. My friend, if you watch your life and you watch your doctrine, you witness salvation. You save both yourself and your hearers. You save yourself. Not by your works, but my friend, if you're not paying attention to yourself, you haven't understood what that salvation is doing. You're not doing what the text calls you to do. And if you don't watch your doctrine, you're not doing that either. You see people saved. You and those around you. Now it doesn't say how often you'll see it happen. It doesn't say that it will be in abundance. It simply, Paul just says, if you watch your life and your doctrine, you persist in this, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. My brothers, my sisters, may we do this to see people saved. The message of this gospel Let me close this way. You may have seen this video. If you have, I apologize. I want to do it as well. Alistair Begg is one of my favorite preachers. If nothing else, the very fact that a Scotsman is pastoring in the middle of Ohio bears some notice. And my trouble is, if a Scotsman speaks, I figure he's saying something intelligent just from the accent alone. But Alistair is really an extraordinarily gifted preacher. Now, some of you, I see you smiling. You probably know the clip I'm referencing, but it is too good not to speak to. Because he, you know, he talks about the danger of not pointing to Jesus. That if your testimony and the content of your life is all about what you did and when you did it, I, 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 me, 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 You've missed something essential. He says, when I get to heaven, one of the guys I want to see as quickly as I can is the thief on the cross. And ask him, so how did, how did that work out? How, what happened? 
You're with your friend on the cross and you're cursing Jesus and you hate him and then all at once, something happened. He said, I can just imagine this fellow coming to heaven's gate and the angel that's letting him in says, so why are you here? I don't know. What did you do? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. I'm here. So in the way he pictures it, beg, he says, so he gets and goes, goes and gets his supervisor angel. And the supervisor says, well, we, we'll try, sir, we're trying to accommodate you here. Tell me what you know about justification by faith. Never heard of it. Well, what are your views of the inspiration of Scripture? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, who told you? I mean, what? The man on the middle cross said, I could come. Now, folks, I'm not trying to undermine all I've said before, but if you don't get that the watching your life and the watching your doctrine and the witnessing of salvation isn't ultimately about this. The one who died for his people. Jesus saves sinners. Us. Right? The only hope I have in the final day, if God grants me life to do this another 20 years, I don't know. When I stand before Him, it shall not be my resume. My resume is meaningless in that context. What matters is Christ. He is my hope. He's the motive for watching my life. He's the motive for watching my doctrine. He's the message that is the salvation of myself and my hearers. My brothers, Nathan in particular, as you do this, lose, do not lose sight of this. I know you shan't. I trust in the faithfulness of God. But fellow members of the body of Christ here at Redeemer, rest in Him. And in that rest, watch yourself. Watch your doctrine and see salvation.